Father, thank you for your unfailing love. God, I am overwhelmed by the beauty and majesty of you. This love that you have for us that never fails. So God, as we open up your word this morning, I pray that you would attune our hearts, turn our ears towards you. God, that we will be reminded that there is nothing that we bring to the table. There's nothing that we can bring to, to, to bring us back to you. So, God, as we open up your, your word and we get to hear the, the closing remarks that Paul has to the church of Thessalonica, I pray that you would use these words to encourage us, use these words to grow us and shape us into your image. And, God, may you be glorified. Help us to look more like you. Shall we pray? Amen. Well, good morning, Heritage. Try that again. I think everybody's asleep. Good morning, Heritage. Hey, it is a huge honor to get to preach the word this morning. Thank you, Aaron, for allowing me the chance to step into your pulpit. Um, These past five months, I looked at the calendar. Uh, It is five months ago that I stood on this stage doing a totally different sermon and probably felt very much like John last week of my life is in your hands as I preach to y'all. Um, and, and I just want to say these past five months have been refreshing for my soul. It has been amazing for my family. Thank y'all for welcoming us. Um, it is a joy to get to be the youth and family pastor here at Heritage. And it has been just a blessing. And so thank you for that. Um, and I have the privilege of concluding our study in First Thessalonians this morning. Some of y'all were just like, amen, finally. Well, we're doing Second Thessalonians next. So... But I get the privilege to, to, to conclude Paul's closing letter to the church at Thessalonica. And as I was preparing, I was like, man, there's not a lot of content for a closing remark. It's not very often that people preach the closing remarks of Paul. But I want to say it was refreshing as I studied this text and poured over this text to see what Paul's final remarks were to a beloved church that he loved. And so if you would turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, for the past three months, we have been studying Paul's first letter to the church of Thessalonica. As we come to the end of Paul's first letter, Paul leaves them with final words and a blessing. And I want to begin this morning with a question for y'all to ponder, is what does it mean to be a Christian on a journey? What does it mean to be a Christian on a journey? On a journey, as followers of Jesus, we often speak of our faith as a journey, a path that we must walk through, and it takes our whole lives. And this journey is not always smooth. It's marked by challenges. Many of us have faced those challenges in our lives. We know the tears of mourning. It's not always challenges, though. It's full of joys. It's full of countless opportunities for growth. And today we turn our attention to a portion of scripture that beautifully encapsulates the essence of the Christian journey. I immediately think of a story that Hannah and I read to Judah at nighttime. Picture this, you're setting off on a journey of faith much like little Christian. 
in the little pilgrim's progress. You're not sure where this journey is going to take you, but you know it's a path of growth, holiness, and transformation. You're not traveling alone, though. You're a part of a community of fellow pilgrims who are walking with this path and walking on this path with you. And as you venture forward, you're constantly reminded of the unwavering faithfulness of the one who has called you to this journey. And in Thessalonians 5, 23 through 28, the apostle Paul writing to the believers in Thessalonica provides us with a snapshot of what this journey of faith looks like. It's a passage that talks about the Christian faith involving a continuous process of sanctification marked by God's unwavering faithfulness and nurtured with the context of a loving and supportive local church. Like a threefold cord, these elements are intertwined, strengthening and sustaining us as we walk this path. And I invite you this morning to consider your own Christian journey, whether you haven't even jumped on it yet or you already are on the journey. But I invite you to consider your own walk with the Lord Whether you're a seasoned traveler or just beginning, there is a profound truth that connects us all. Whether we've been on the journey for a while or we just started, our journey is one of sanctification, marked by God's faithfulness and enriched by the love and support of a local church. So turn with me to 1 Thessalonians 5, starting in verse 23. Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely and may your whole spirit and soul and body be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. He who calls you is faithful. He will surely do it. Brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And so as Paul concludes his first letter, he prays for the complete holiness of his readers. This is common for Paul in his letters to begin his closing remarks with a peace benediction. In fact, it occurs seven times in his letters. For example, here's a few, Romans 16, 20. It says, the God of peace and grace of our Lord be with you. In 2 Corinthians 13, 11. It says, and the God of love and peace be with you. And then later in 2 Thessalonians 3, 16, he says, may the Lord of peace himself give you peace. So it's common for Paul as he closes his remarks to his beloved congregation he's, re- he's writing to, to give a peace benediction of a prayer for peace. And his purpose here is to reiterate the key themes that he's already addressed in his letter He wants to reorient his his readers back to what have I been talking about? What have I been urging you to do? And what we see is he begins by going back to the central theme of his letter, sanctification. This is a word we love to throw around in the church circle. We're like, oh yeah, you're sanctification. And we're like, well, what does that even mean? Well, a simple definition is this. It's the process of becoming more and more like Christ. Tom Watson states it like this, a sanctified person not only bears God's name, but his image. It's a total, complete 
transformation of the being into the image of its creator, God. If you go back just one chapter, this is God's desire for all believers. Aaron hit on it. If you want to know the will of God for your life, if you want to know what God's will for your life is, go back to 1 Thessalonians 4, 3. It says, for this is the will of God, your sanctification. It's not what school you're going to go to. It's not to be who you want to be. It's not, oh, I'm born this way, so I'm going to affirm what you feel. God's will for your life is your sanctification. Not that you would continue to look like yourself, but that you would look like Christ. And that is God's will for your life. Put another way, sanctification is the process of one becoming more and more holy. See, there's a difference between sanctification and justification. And it's not just letters. There's a difference. You see, justification happens that moment that you are redeemed. The moment you say, God, I want you as my Lord and Savior. I repent from my sins. You are now justified before God because of Jesus' blood. And that happens immediately and nothing changes that. You are justified the moment you repent from your sins and you believe in Jesus. But sanctification is the process after that. And it goes on until you die or Christ returns. It's a never-ending process of God taking the flesh and turning you more and more into like him, becoming more and more holy. And Paul takes this idea further as he prays for them. He says that it's God, the, God is the one who does it. He prays that God himself would sanctify the Thessalonians completely. God is the author and perfecter of sanctification. And this is a crucial doctrine of a believer. You have no part in your sanctification, none. There is nothing that you can do. You could come to church every single week and you do not add anything to your sanctification. Your, your family's legacy has nothing to do with your, fam, your, your sanctification. It is God's work and God's work alone. And Paul reiterates that over and over again. And God calls you to be holy. Why? Because in 1 Peter 1, he says, be holy for I am holy. And in Hebrews 12, 14, it talks about this strive for holiness because we serve a holy God. And so he calls us to be holy. So not only does Paul pray that God would sanctify them, he also prays that they would be sanctified completely. And he explains this, this, this sanctification completely in three ways. First, it's you're to be sanctified completely. The Greek word used here is halotelos, which is a combination of the Greek word for whole and to the end. So God's intention for sanctification is that it would be brought to completion. He doesn't intend to just string you along. He intends to complete your sanctification. Then he further adds to this, this description by saying, and may your whole spirit and soul and body be sanctified. This is a further description of the completeness of our sanctification. Here we have the question of the nature of man. 
And the theological debate in this passage regards to whether a man is two parts, dichotomy, or three parts, trichotomy. As I was studying this, this was something that I didn't know about. And so I began my, my study going, I have no idea what I think about this. I've never heard of this. I've never been taught this. But clearly it's here, so we have to look at it. So obviously everyone agrees that we have a physical body. We see that. We understand that. We, we, we know that we are physical. And many people would agree that we have a soul. There's this immaterial part of us that we don't know how to explain, but there, there, there's this something different about us. So we, we all tend to agree that there are two parts. Yeah, body, soul, that makes sense. Well, there are some who believe that there's a third part to human beings. It's the spirit. This first began in Greek philosophy. And those that held this belief, they, they believed that the spirit was only awakened when regeneration happened. So when you became a believer, your spirit was awakened and that third part of you was reborn. This quickly, however, was disregarded after Apollinarius, who he believed that man was three part, but he took it a step further and he started to say, actually, Jesus only has two of those parts, but his mind is divine. And quickly the church realized, yeah, that's heresy. We're not going to go that way. And so trichotomy was out. But a familiar theologian holds this view, and that's Spurgeon. He believes that the moment at regeneration, our spirit is awakened. But unfortunately, as I began my study on this, there isn't conclusive evidence for this view. You can't find a scripture that, that clearly states that there's three parts. Yes, we have the, the Trinity, but there's no evidence to the fact that human beings have body, soul, and spirit. Because the other side of this debate is dichotomy. It's the belief that man is made up of body and soul. This is the one that most evangelicals hold to. It's, it's one that I would land on as well. We are body and soul. When it comes to our passage this morning, as I was doing my study, we have to realize that Paul is not making a theological statement on the nature of man in this moment. Why? Because the logic for trichotomy is the fact that Paul said, well, body, soul, and spirit. So obviously, man is three parts. But this logic is flawed because if you look at other parts of Scripture, if you go to Deuteronomy 6, the Shema, love the Lord God with all your heart, soul, and mind. Okay, there's three. So is the man three parts? You can maybe get to that conclusion. But it starts to get tricky when you start looking at the Gospels. Because in Mark chapter 12, verse 30, Jesus is quoting Deuteronomy 6, but he adds another element to it. He says, love your God with your strength. So is Jesus saying man is four parts? He hasn't even talked about body and soul. So you could possibly say, wait, is, is man six parts? Right? This logic, it's flawed because just because Paul said three different words doesn't mean that man is three parts because then you would have to look at Jesus' words and say, well, I guess Jesus is saying that man is four. There's four parts of a man. Because if you look at Scripture as a whole, Paul is not making a statement on the nature of man. His concern here is not are you bipartite or tripartite. 
To get fixated on this, this doctrine would be missing the point of his prayer. What Paul was doing is he's further praying for the wholeness in our sanctification. He uses three different terms to get at the fact that the whole being is involved in the process of sanctification. There is not a part of you that is not going to be sanctified. You don't get to say, hey, God, you get two parts and I get one. What Paul is emphasizing is your sanctification is supposed to be through and through. And he uses these three words to kind of just drill home that point of your sanctification is a process that takes the whole being. You are going to be completely made new. And so he wants the Thessalonians to know that God desires and wants to sanctify us wholly to the day of Christ. All of them, all of us, every part of me is being sanctified. I want you to imagine a house being renovated. Right, the moment you renovate one part of your house, What's your next thought? I've got to go renovate another part. Right? Like we just renovated our laundry room, but then we're like, ah, now our laundry room looks amazing. And the rest of our house doesn't make sense. We've got to renovate that. But the thing is, is you start in the laundry room. You don't renovate the laundry room, the dining room, the living room, and all that at one time. You slowly work through it and you sanctify yourself completely. The third way he addresses this sanctification is that we would be kept blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the end product of our sanctification. We are blameless. We're without blemish. This takes place when Christ returns. This is our yet to come. Again, think back to a home renovation. It takes a process. You don't just renovate your house in one day. If you did, that's incredible. But it takes time. It takes work. It takes effort. It's a process that we go through. Your faith is not complete the day you repent and believe. It's a process that God does in and through you. And then Paul further provides comfort So he talks about, man, I pray that you would sanctify them completely and wholly. But then we see another aspect of God's faithfulness, and that's the assurance in God's call. If God has called you, he will do it. This encouragement further stresses the crucial role that God plays in the sanctification of all believers. You can trust God. He is faithful And to be trusted, he will complete the work he started. You'll see in Philippians 1, 6, he who began a good work in you will bring it to completion. If anyone understood the faithfulness of God in scripture, it would be Paul. He would know the stories of the Old Testament. He would know about the parting of the Red Sea. He would know about the promise of Abraham. He would know about finally entering the promised land. Why? Because of his Jewish heritage. He would know the faithfulness of God. And then he emphasizes the one who does the calling. And y'all, we can find encouragement in our sanctification because the one who does the calling is the one who will do it. And it's not me. It's not you. 
It's God. God does the work of sanctification. He who has called you will do it. And praise God, it wasn't me because I would fail. Praise God, it wasn't you because you would fail in your sanctification. But God was the one that called you. God is the one who's going to do it, right? This, this letter opens up with a bold assertion that God was the one who chose the believers in Thessalonica. Paul then in chapter two elaborates on this fact that God took initiative in the calling. It says in 1 Thessalonians 3, 3, our suffering was destined. Later in, ver- in chapter four, verse seven, God does not call us to be impure, This should bring you hope. Your sanctification doesn't rest on you because you did not come to God on your own. You did not sit in your bedroom and all of a sudden say, wow, I need Jesus. It's impossible. God was the one that did the call because our flesh wants nothing to do with him. And so without the spirit moving in your life, You would still be dead in your sins because the sanctification of yourself doesn't rest on you because you didn't call God. God called you and he is faithful to do it. You can trust that. So the journey of God's faithfulness and sanctification is one aspect that we see here. But we see that God's faithfulness is nurtured within the context of a loving, faithful community. Paul switches gears here after his his prayer of benediction, as his peace benediction finishes, Paul shifts gears. He says now, okay, so so he shifts gears as, as he started this. And now he says, brothers, pray for us. He shifts gears on the reader. He says, brothers, pray for us. Greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. And so now Paul shifts gears to the responsibility and the role of a local church. As he concludes his first letter, you can feel the change in mood and tone. He had just prayed for the believers in Thessalonica and now he shifts his attention and says, now you pray for us. Who's he asking? Who is the us? He, he goes from praying for them and he gives them a list of imperatives and he gives three of them. And he had just said a prayer for these brothers in Thessalonica, and now he asks the church to pray for Paul, Timothy, and Silvanus. And what we see here, Paul's writing to the, the church of Thessalonica. And as we've seen in our study, this is a church who is faithful. And so he gives this church three charges of here is your responsibility in God's faithfulness of your sanctification. Here is your role as a local church. And he starts with this. You are to be a community of prayer. Paul's first parting desire is that the Thessalonians would be a community dedicated to prayer. And he begins his plea by using the familial term as brothers. He's not talking to strangers here. He's not talking to some random people. He's he's talking to his beloved He's talking to these these men and women who he has gotten to know and has has loved and cherished. And he says, brothers, pray for us. There's this bond in this church. Paul knows the power of prayer in every letter. 
He assures the congregation he's writing to, I have been praying for you. I give thanks for you. And it's not uncommon for them, Paul, to ask for prayer. In Colossians 4, he asked them to pray for them that a door for the gospel to be shared while he's in prison. And then later in 2 Corinthians 1, he asked the church for the help by prayer. And where is Paul at during the writing of this letter? He's he's in Corinth as he writes. If you know anything about the church in Corinth, Paul needed all the prayer he could to minister to that church. And so there's power in communal prayer. And and Paul asks, he urges the church, pray for us. And what is Paul asking them to pray for? Simply the work of the ministry. In his second letter, he's going to ask that they would pray that the word would advance forward. Paul is asking the church to pray on behalf of the work of the ministry. Heritage, Paul is urging you to pray for your pastors. Pray for the work of the ministry and for one another. Our pastors in here are not going to appreciate this because they don't like being on the spotlight. But if you didn't know, this month is Pastor Appreciation Month. And Heritage is blessed with eight incredible pastors who love and cherish this church. Celebrate them. Honor them. Pray for your pastors. How? Pray for their family. Pray for their safety as they minister to us, the church, as they pray and they seek the welfare of a location that we have been placed in. Pray for wisdom as they serve, that they would not seek their own thoughts, but they would seek God's. Pray they would be aligned with God's will. They meet every single week. And they pray for y'all. And they fight for y'all. Pray for them. Pray for their time and study and effectiveness when we preach the word. Be a church that is dedicated to the ministry of prayer. Second, Paul urges them to be a community dedicated to love and unity. Paul desires that the church would display loving affection to one another. This practice of greeting others He says, greet all the brothers with a holy kiss. This was common in Paul's day, that they would greet one another. Not just random strangers, but they they would greet church members, family, with this holy kiss, this, this kiss. It was a distinction that he's making here. Because the world would understand this. Oh, yeah, greet one another with a kiss. Okay. But he says with a holy kiss. It was to show a bond is to show a community of, of love and fellowship, to make the fellow believers know that they are loved and cherished. All were to feel like they were part of the family. Now, Heritage, Paul is not saying every morning when we come here to greet one another with a kiss. Okay, that would be weird. That would be strange for us because that's not our context. This would be equivalent to a handshake or maybe a, maybe a hug. The point is not for you to go up and, and greet one another with a kiss. What the point is, is the love and mutual ministry that comes from a local church. He is urging the church to love one another and make all feel welcome. 
and heritage. Y'all do a wonderful job at this. It's one of the features that sets our church apart. There is a sense of community and love when you come into this building. I felt it when Hannah and I were a part of Heritage back three and a half years ago. And we felt it the moment we stepped foot here as well. It was a new building, new faces. But you want to know what was still the same? The love and unity here. And Paul is urging this faithful church, continue to foster love and unity for all the believers. And that is what he is calling us today. And third, he says, be a community dedicated to the reading of the word. Paul concludes with one final desire for the, Seth, for the Thessalonians, that they would submit to God's word. He says, I put you under oath before the Lord to have this letter read to all the brothers. He wants to make sure that the ministry of God's word is honored among the Thessalonians. Paul uses the word that would be equivalent to adjure. The word is a hard word for us to translate in the English language. It means something to the effect of, I hereby make you responsible before God. This is a serious statement that Paul has made here. And notice, he, he takes over the script. You could tell that, that Paul is now personally saying this. As he says, I put you under the oath before the Lord. What Paul is sharing is so crucial that he wants to ensure that it gets shared with others. This was God's word, and it must be read aloud. Paul gives clarity on the channel in which this letter is to be shared, and it's through reading. The audience receiving this letter would not have had multiple copies of God's word like we do. They would have had this one letter and he's charging the men that are in charge of this church, make sure you read this. So it's addressing a corporate setting as they're worshiping together, read this letter aloud. Because this would be the only copy. They probably wouldn't have a ton just in the bookstore waiting for them to pick up. This would make it nearly impossible for those to read individually. Even if you were able to read back then, it would have been hard to get a copy of this. And so the reading of scripture was a non-negotiable. And Paul here charges the leaders of the church to read this before all of the brothers. One mark of a healthy church is a dedication to the reading and preaching of God's word. It is imperative that pastors preach the word. Scripture is valuable to the church. Why? Because he says later on that it's used for instruction. It's, it's used for, in, for edification, for encouragement. And Paul is encouraging the faithful church of Thessalonica to not forget the importance of God's word. You can't have a church without the word of God being taught. Sanctification is done through the word. John says in 17, John 17, 17, to sanctify them in the truth. And Jesus prayed, your word is truth. John Calvin cited this text when he condemned the Catholic church for withholding the reading of the word from the people. He called them more refractory than even devils themselves. 
That's a harsh claim. But Calvin understood it. Paul understood it. The reading of God's word is essential. It's a non-negotiable. Paul knew that there was a group that would not adhere to his instructions. That's why he put it here. He knew that there would be a group in this church that was going to, to not listen. And we'll see the outcome of that in 2 Thessalonians as we look at it. But he closes his letter with a personal charge to keep preaching the word. And that's true for us today. It is common for churches today to neglect the teaching of the word. It is common for churches today to neglect the truth. In our culture, we are so busy attracting large numbers with entertainment that the word is forgotten and overshadowed by being relevant. Too many churches today are straying from the reading of the word due to the fear of not having people in their seats or not having enough money for tithing. And they've neglected the instrument of our sanctification, which is the word. And what Paul is saying here is he closes, don't neglect the preaching of the word. And y'all, I am grateful that this does not represent heritage. I am grateful to be a part of a church that values and teaches the word faithfully week in and week out. Because you will not find truth in the world. You will not find truth on your TikTok feeds. You will not find truth in anything that the world produces. It's through the word of God. And Paul charges the church of Thessalonica and the church of heritage today, preach the word and sit down. Preach the word, sit, and let it do its thing. So the Christian faith is a process of sanctification marked by God's unwavering faithfulness and nurtured within the context of a loving and supportive local church. As we conclude our exploration of 1 Thessalonians, let us take to heart the profound truth it contains. In this passage, we find a blueprint for the Christian journey. First, sanctification. We are called to embrace holiness in every aspect of our lives, allowing God to renew our bodies, souls, and spirits. Let's strive to become more like Christ each day. How are you actively pursuing sanctification in your life? How are you actively allowing God to make you more and more like him? We see it secondly through God's faithfulness. We can rest in the unwavering faithfulness of our creator. He is faithful in his promises and in his call. Let's trust him to guide and protect us. Are you trusting in God's faithfulness in your sanctification or are you trusting in yourself? And lastly, we see it through the church, the community. The church is a source of support, prayer, love, and the word of God. And so let's actively engage in our faith community, praying for one another, showing love to one another and nourishing our souls with scripture. Are you active in nurturing the fellow believers in your church? You can't be if you don't show up. Let's not forget that this Christian journey is not meant to be traveled alone. We are a community of believers supporting and encouraging one another. As we go forth from this place, may we live out these principles, growing in holiness, trusting in God's faithfulness, and loving our fellow travelers on this remarkable journey of faith.
And Paul concludes his letter with a benediction. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you. And that is what I leave y'all with today. May the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with you.